Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Warning. This episode contains scenes that may be disturbing to some of our listeners. At the end of the previous episode, Consuelo Amaya, Captain Coral's sister-in-law, recalled how many in Colombia and around the world remember Pablo Escobar, but few keep the memory alive of the anonymous heroes who helped to end his reign of terror. This turbulent time in the mid-90s, after Pablo Escobar fell and Captain Coral was killed, left a trail of pain in the Coral family. They were particularly difficult years in the context of more than six decades of armed conflict in Colombia, in which almost 270,000 people died. In addition to that figure of fatalities, it is estimated that more than 421,000 have been affected in one way or another. And in this context, the Coral family was like many others, fractured, scared, and grieving. One more family in mid-90s Colombia. At that time, Luz Mary Garrido, the widow of Captain Coral, remembers a drastic change in the attitude of her son Beto. Ese niño alegre, porque él era un niño demasiado alegre, inquieto, bailaba, cantaba, actuaba. Such a happy kid. And... You know, because he was so happy, he was restless, he danced, he sang, he acted in school. He was always asked to participate in the plays where they were singing and acting. He was a very active child who liked to help. Captain Coral's death was so unexpected and traumatic that it left everyone in shock. The days following the murder were difficult, even logistically. A family friend lent Luz Mary Garrido a car to drive from Ibagué to Bogotá, almost five hours away. They spent the night there in Bogotá, and in the morning of April 23, 1994, the family took a flight to Barranquilla, 
the city on the coast where Humberto Coral was born and raised. But Beto's attitude, behavior, and personality transformed after that burial in Barranquilla. He stood next to his father's coffin, and he walked in silence. He didn't cry. He didn't say a word. Nothing. He appeared tough, but on the inside, he was a child who felt tired, confused, and sad. El niño llegó a la sala fúnebre y llegó la policía. And then my son arrived at the funeral home, and then the police arrived. Four policemen lined up, two at the foot of the coffin, two at the top, with my son standing next to it, with a very dry look. In other words, with a hardness, without a gesture of pain, of sadness. He had no expression on his face. Then I called to him, and I said, Papi, come here, are you tired? I was amazed because this kid, I remember, very well said to me from now on I'm not allowed to get tired I can't get tired and I won't get tired let's imagine the scene at the funeral there's an eight-year-old Beto surrounded by uniformed police officers carrying his father's coffin whom he had just seen a few weeks before when they lowered the coffin into the grave they also lowered the promise of finally living together as a family and from that moment in Barranquilla Beto has memories that are almost impossible to forget. We arrived in Barranquilla and everything was disorderly. Everything was horrible. Everyone was screaming. Everyone was crying. Beto has a photo he shared with me. In it, he's small, in the background, with a stoic gaze. He's surrounded by police officers, with more people gathered around. Beto is helping to carry the large and heavy coffin wrapped in a huge Colombian flag. The funeral changed everything for him. In his mind, Beto thought of his father as a detail-oriented, dancing, smiling, and loving man. The image of the corpse in the coffin forever altered that image in Beto and Jennifer's mind. Unfortunately, I was able to see my father dead in the coffin, and it's inevitable not to remember him without seeing him dead in the casket. And it seems super terrible to me that a child sees that. I mean, I don't understand why they took us to see that. Like, look, there's your dad, dead and full of cotton. The entire Coral family was devastated. It was also tough to see my grandmother suffer, because I think for a mother, it must be tough to bury a child. To see my grandmother like that, she still cries for him. But I've never heard that type of yelling in my life. The screams of my grandmother were difficult to describe. And it's because Beto and Jennifer's grandmother, who was on a trip in New York, traveled back home after being told only a half-truth, that her son Humberto had not survived the surgery he was scheduled to have. There they told her that my father was killed, and how he was killed. It was a funeral with a lot of people, in a cemetery in the outskirts of Barranquilla, outdoors, under the sun. The casket that seemed shocking and ostentatious to Beto seemed to go hand-in-hand hand with the event. Jennifer described it as having a certain tone of grandeur. 
lo, los homenajes que todo lo que le hacen es it's super moving I mean the tributes everything they do is something I mean it's super nice because it's like a movie you see those military wakes in the movies and you say wow how elegant all the military but really it's something super ugly and at their young age Jennifer and Beto had a hard time understanding what was happening el dolor de pronto en ese momento no es tan fuerte porque uno no, no asimila la pérdida. The pain at that moment is not so strong, metaphorically, because they keep telling you that he's in heaven and that he will always be with you. So as a child, we always take everything very literally. So I imagined that my dad was going to come see me every day. And Beto waited for the day his dad would come back to see him. But that moment would never come. Although the memory of his dad helped him, as he told his mother that day, to never give up, to never get tired. This is Transportista, Who Murdered Captain Coral? Episode 4, I Can't Get Tired. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of My Cultura Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Seven questions, limitless answers. After his father died and the family gathered at the funeral, Beto Coral made a promise to himself to step in as the man of the family. He was young, he was only eight years old. His mother describes that commitment she saw in her young son. Here again, Luz Mary. Since then, I've seen another attitude in Beto. It was a strange attitude in a kid, a silence, like, here I am, the one who will take care of the family. Beto was very compassionate and understanding with his mother, who lived through very challenging times. Beto and his sister shared a common goal, to ease their mother's pain. One day I came home and I said, well, I'm going to fix them something to eat. So I went over to start cooking, and when I opened the fridge, I expected to see sausages. I had bought sausages for about 15 days to cook for them, And I also had gotten some ham and some cheese. Luzmeri realized that all the food she had purchased for her children for the next few days was no longer in the refrigerator. And I said, what happened? Did you eat all the sausages and ham? And, you know, the kids, they just looked back at me with fear. Then they took out coins and bills from their little box. And my daughter said... It wasn't my fault. Beto told me we should make hot dogs and sandwiches and sell them in the neighborhood. <laughs> These kids, they, they sold our foot. They sold our food. But they did it to make a profit. <laughs> and they made a profit. And they even replaced the sausages and the ham. They got more customers. <laughs> they kept selling them. When Captain Coral was murdered, The government of Colombia forgot about them, and the family had to resort to different measures to survive. We were left with nothing, without receiving any money, rent, food, school, all that. I started taking care of everything, and it wasn't too much for me because I've always worked. Before his death, the family depended largely on Captain Coral's salary to get by. Luz Mary had always worked selling merchandise and clothes, but it was hard to take care of her two young children completely. So I started taking kids to school, selling lunches and groceries at home. I wanted to say, wow, I can take care of my kids. I can provide them what they need instead of going to my parents' house. So I had to make a lot of effort to maintain the same standard of living. All this while the Coral family continued to deal with such a painful loss. But Beto didn't give up. He suffered seeing his mother working so hard and finding herself in such a difficult situation. There were years when my mom didn't even have enough to feed us, and she would come home crying. She would say, we have nothing, I have nothing to feed you. I learned to eat something called guarrus. Guarrus is the food that poor people eat in Colombia when they only have rice and water, no oil or salt. So they mix the rice with water, cook it, and the rice turns into a watery mess. And we ate that for many nights because we have no money. 
These brutal shortcomings could have been less severe if the state had supported Luzmeri with a pension. However, in life, Captain Coral omitted something that could have solved many problems for them. Luzmeri Garrido and Humberto Coral never got married. And as we mentioned in the previous episode, Captain Coral was no saint. Luzmeri found out something at the funeral that broke her heart. But my dad had another boy from another woman and another daughter from another woman who I must say are wonderful. They're my siblings. I have nothing against them. Beto remembers that his mother, in addition to feeling pain, felt anger. La culpa es exclusiva de mi papá. The blame is solely on my dad for exposing us like this. But my mom was not married to my dad. And the law in Colombia at that time was absurd and did not allow the presumption of union that a de facto marital union can exist. That is, if a couple has been together for at least two years, then the state can allow it to be considered a marriage. Therefore, she was left with nothing. But all the four children of Captain Coral have the right to receive a small amount. Economics were not the only hardship the family suffered. La niña ya vivía como en otro mundo. La niña ya me tocó con psicólogo, foneodiólogo, terapia de lenguaje, porque la niña se bloqueó totalmente. My daughter appeared. She'd already been to see psychologists, speech therapists, or language therapy, because she was completely blocked. In the classroom, she wouldn't talk. She was very scattered. And once the psychologist asked Jennifer, tell me, what do you want? And she answered, I want to go see my dad, and then I'll come back. While for many girls and boys, elementary school is a fun and joyful period, for Jennifer, it was the opposite. En ese momento, cuando supieron en mi colegio que, que yo había quedado huérfana... At that moment, when they found out at my school that I had become an orphan, I was the object of teasing and bullying. Like, I remember so much that your dad went to hell for killing Escobar. Like, your dad will pull your legs at night, and they made fun of me. She had to endure the bullying from her classmates, and the mother of the family had to use what little money she had to pay for private school tuition. I studied in private schools because I was not accepted in a police school. They did not accept me. They did not give me a spot. Since Beto was the son of a police officer of that rank, a captain posthumously promoted to major, they assumed he would have the right to study in a public police school. But he was denied a spot. Because they were orphans, only until eighth grade, my mom managed to get a spot. Luzmeri had multiple jobs at the same time. She fought daily to give her children the education they deserved. Her life was not easy. And on top of that, because she was a woman and a widow, there were men who took advantage of her. She managed to get a spot for him at the police school when Beto started the eighth grade, the last year of middle school in Colombia, when he was 14. However, The way she got it, I remember it to this day. The principal at that time, she begged and pursued him to give us a spot for her two children. At that moment, he asked her out. And every time my mom went to his office, she had to endure the harassment from that man in order to get us a spot. 
My mom even suffered sexual harassment from police officers at that time. And it was very, very painful to see my mom have to humiliate herself that way. At that time, you saw it as normal. Although my mom told us, yes, he's asking me out. From my mom, what can we do? So I'm going to go out with him. And it was very sad. Now I understand it, today, and it angers me even more. Now, today. And that's how it was. Those were very tough years. It's another case of sexual harassment in a country and a region where this type of violence is so common that it is seen as an epidemic that threatens women. But it was not, and is not, acceptable or tolerable. Those years put the whole family to the test, but Beto swore he wouldn't give up. Despite the difficulties, both Jennifer and Beto graduated from school. And as Beto grew up, he began to develop an increasingly strong interest in following his father's footsteps. I always wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be like my dad. Every time he tried, he made a mistake that set off alarms within the institution. In every interview, I told the details of my father's murder. Beto had grown up witnessing injustices, and he wanted to remedy them however he could. But every time he sat down for an interview at the police academy, his words made them uncomfortable. So clearly during the interviews they would say, well, this gentleman, look at all the family's background, and we seem talking too much about his dad. So I passed all the exams, but when it came to the final stage, the psychologist gave me a negative assessment, and they rejected me because they noticed in me a quite contentious personality. That ended Beto's dream as a teenager, to honor his father's memory by following in his footsteps. And he was rejected from the same institution where his father stood out and was decorated. But Beto had a vocation that he was not going to give up. In 2008, he was accepted to study law at the Cooperative University of Colombia in Ibagué, a private university. To pay tuition, like he'd done his whole life, Beto worked. He prepared and sold pork tamales and drove a taxi. Studying law made him feel more confident among his classmates. When I told my story and the reasons why I was studying law, people were a little surprised by it. They were a little shocked by how he was killed. And as he progressed in life and acquired greater knowledge in the field of law, he delved more and more into the facts and circumstances surrounding his father's murder. He also became very active on social media and started using it to dig into the past. It was during this period that one day his mother received a strange phone call. She picked up the receiver and heard a voice. It said, tell your son. They didn't ask for anything, but it said, tell your son to stop digging or I'll end up like his father. Luzmeri was terrified. Immediately, she contacted Beto and she found out something that Beto had been hiding from her, that he, on his own, had been investigating the events that led to his father's murder. The kid starts telling me everything, and I'm, I'm amazed. 
He had been doing it for years without telling his family. Luzmeri learned that Beto began his own investigation when he was an early teen. So I said to him, please tell me everything. I need to know everything. Then he says to me, I sent two letters to the president. At the time, the president was Alvaro Uribe, and he sent him two letters. He was just a kid. I don't know, 13, 14 years old, maybe 15, but he was a kid. And he said, I remember, he says to me, in the year that I sent the letter to the president of the republic, mom, I wasn't asking for food or housing. I wasn't asking for help with my homework or school. I was asking for my father's death not to go unpunished. Beto revealed the details of his investigation and his contact with President Álvaro Uribe only after his mom received that call. And they weren't just threatening him through his mom. I received death threats in 2015 throughout the entire year because I was insistent on my social media talking about the subject. I would write to many generals and policemen looking for them. Beto conducted his investigation on his own, with his own means. He didn't have access to an official file that would reveal any truth or omission to him. He sought high-ranking police officers constantly, pressuring them to share with him and the world what they knew or hid about his father's murder. However, these threats sometimes confused him. I sometimes took the calls from these police officers as, like, friendly. Until one day, it all made sense. A call from a police general alerted me. At first it was funny because, hello, hi general, how are you? Good, good, Beto, all good? Beto, Beto, look, stop that, let it go, brother. They're going to kill you out there and you're going to leave your mom alone. It's in the past. Well, man, thank you very much. Well, take care of yourself. God bless you. God bless you, General. I hung up after two minutes. This man who just told me that if I continued, they will kill me. I took it as a death threat. Beto felt restless and scared, like at his father's funeral. He prefers not to reveal the identity of the police officer who gave him that chilling message over the phone. But it was clear and it disturbed Beto to the point where he began to plan escape routes and strategies in secret. And one day I told mom, I think I'm going to have to leave because they're going to kill me. And yes, I'm afraid they might do something to you. Because of his background and academic training, Beto knew his country and the extreme violence that was possible. Time passed. Beto had two children. He started a new chapter. He began to study law. It was then that he received a threat targeting one of his sons. I had my social networks with photos of him. I was sent photos of him threatening to kill him. They had sent him a message by email threatening his son. Beto knew he had to leave the country, and fast. I had to buy an urgent ticket on December 22nd because they were going to tell me they were going to kill me before the end of the year. This terrifying message meant that he could no longer stay in Colombia. He had seen it happen too many times. 
and each time was worse than the last. This time, they were not only messing with him or his mom, but his son. Beto couldn't come up with another option, so he shared his plans to his mom. Entonces, yo me rebelé. Yo le dije yo, no, usted no se va. I had a meltdown. I completely rejected that. I said to him, no, you're not leaving. He said, hug me, give me a hug and say goodbye. Don't let me leave without hugging my family. I didn't say goodbye. I saw how determined he was, but I thought to myself, if I don't say goodbye, he won't leave. I don't want to say goodbye. I don't want to see him go. So I went home and the phone started ringing at seven in the morning. I saw messages on WhatsApp saying, mom, please answer me. Don't let me go without getting a hug from you. And I told him, I told him, no. No, Humberto, don't go. I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to say goodbye. I don't want you to go. Luzmeri had to experience yet another loss. She didn't want to be separated from her beloved son. It was as if Luzmeri was once again having a family member ripped away from her. And once again, it was because he was seeking justice in her country. Beto decided to leave before those threats were fulfilled, and he ended up like a ghost, like Captain Coral. With a broken heart for being unable to say goodbye to his mom with one last hug, especially on such a special day, Beto took a flight from Bogota to Houston on Christmas Day 2015. Until this day, Beto and his mom, Luzmeri, haven't hugged each other again. We'll be back after a break. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together, and that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr., and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate, because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me sharing memories, and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. 
But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Amidst death threats against his mother, his son, and himself, Beto arrived in the United States on a tourist visa. He came alone, without his family, and without knowing how to speak English. Beto had never left Colombia before. He decided to try his luck in the United States because he was told he could get help there. He decided to settle where almost all Colombians do when they arrive. Me voy para Miami, donde pues ese choque cultural no es, no pega mucho. I'm going to Miami, where that cultural shock doesn't affect us much. And I arrived in Miami and started my asylum process, and I really didn't know how to do it. Asylum is a resource for obtaining legal residence in another country if applicants believe they are being persecuted in their country of origin based on race, religion, membership in a social group, or a defined political opinion. Although this might seem suitable considering Beto's circumstances, he entered the country on a tourist visa and applied for asylum after the fact. When done this way, asylum seekers face a high risk of getting processed or deported due to what is called a false entry. Nevertheless, and despite the risk, Beto began this long process. Pero luego me, me comentan que eso era mejor a través de un trámite independiente con un paralegal o con un abogado. But then I was told that it was better to do it through an independent process with a paralegal or a lawyer who said that. So I did it that way. Apart from fleeing to save his own life, Beto thought, perhaps naively, that the United States would also help him bring justice to his father's case. I believed that the United States was going to help me to protect my mother's life. I believed that the United States because my father gave his life in the war and worked with the DEA, was going to help me. Because, let's not forget, Captain Coral, as part of the search block, collaborated with the DEA and FBI to end the reign of Pablo Escobar. Captain Coral had also received training in the U.S. Beto thought this would make it easier for him to obtain asylum, but more than seven years have passed. Beto has not been able to obtain asylum in the United States. It has been more than seven years without him hugging his mother, and he has been separated from his children. But, as he told his mother that day when he was only eight years old, he would never give up. I traveled many times to Washington, took action before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. This commission is part of the Organization of American States, based in Washington, D.C., Beto filed complaints and began exhausting his resources to pursue his father's case and protect himself. But again, he was not making progress. The commission denied him the resources for precautionary measures and protection twice. 
In addition to seeking justice for his father's case, he also became involved in other causes of social leaders in Colombia and those injured in protests, not only with the Commission, but also with the United Nations. And this was not his only priority. Remember that Beto arrived in the United States with no money. He only had one semester left to finish law school. But in the United States, it was impossible for him to have his studies recognized. He had to start a new life. Like millions of other migrants who come to the United States, he began to work wherever he could, again facing the economic necessity of doing whatever it takes to survive. Well, I came to do what all Colombians do when they are abroad and put in the effort. I have been a valet parking attendant, I picked up garbage, I was a waiter, I did more. I worked in construction, I did one of the toughest jobs in the United States, in a bakery. Cooking bread is terrible because you go from extreme heat to extreme cold. Over time, when Beto took the dough out of the freezer and went to the oven area, he told me that this caused his eye veins to burst, and he also burned the skin on his arms, so he decided to cover the scar with a tattoo. It was terrible. The bread burned at first. Well, but there's a saying that goes, a baker who doesn't burn the bread is not a good baker. And yes, Beto baked bread, parked cars in a valet parking lot, or drove for Uber. But even in exile, while waiting for news on his status as an asylum seeker in the United States and knocking on the United Nations door or the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, he did not give up his quest for justice for his father's case. From afar, he fought to obtain more details that would completely change the course of his investigation, even if it meant facing the highest levels of power in his country. And it was the first time, after almost 26 years, that I managed to obtain that file. But it was like that, it was by force. A judicial file that had been hidden for decades, which would completely change the course of his investigation. And it would also change the direction of his life. That's on the next episode of Transportista. Who murdered Captain Coral? con mi folio, con mis cartas, con la foto de mi papá, recorriendo todas las oficinas judiciales. With my case number, letters, and father's photo, visiting all the judicial offices so they would listen to me, give me the file, move it or draw attention. Look, do something to discover my father's killer. Everyone ignore me. I think the prosecutor's office didn't give it to me, and I think they withheld the file for many years so that I wouldn't do anything in the years when I could have done something. Como que los muy cercanos fueron muriendo. The close ones were dying, and then four months later, they killed a lieutenant. It wasn't a captain, but they killed him in the same conditions that they killed Umbertico. Transportista, Who Murdered Captain Coral, is a production of Exile Content Studio and Detective, in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Álvaro Céspedes. Production by Diego Olivares Jiménez and Álvaro Céspedes, with the help of Sabine Jansen, Andrea Ceballos, Ana Isabel Octavio, and Verónica Hernández. Written by Álvaro Céspedes. Edited by Carmen Graterol. Fact-checking by Desiree Yepes. Thanks to the voice actors who contributed in this episode. Beto Coral is Horacio Mancilla. Jennifer Coral is Andrea Ceballos. 
Luz Mary Garrido is Rose Reed. Teresa Cifuentes is Carmen Graterol. Executive Producers are Carmen Graterol, Rose Reed, Isaac Lee, and Diego Enrique Osorno. Sound Design by Pachi Quiñones and Gonzalo Messi. Original Music by Sebastián León. Daniel Batista oversees audio at Exile Content Studio. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Vances and Arlene Santana. Research by Meño Larios and Emma Friedland. Production supervision by Julio González. Created by Diego Enrique Osorno. For more podcasts, go to the iHeart Radio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.